Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. My Bible's open to Romans chapter 11, and you may be thinking it's been open there a long time, Pastor. For several weeks, we've been walking through this very difficult but very important chapter in Paul's epistle to the Romans. We come to the penultimate sermon, which means there's one more after this one. Uh, in chapter 11. Then we're going to take three weeks off from the book of Romans. We're going to spend two weeks talking about the advent, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, and then on New Year's Day, we're going to have a church-wide prayer meeting here. And you want to make plans to be here New Year's Day, I know. The title of today's message is God's Plan for Israel. I was thinking this week that that title would have been nonsensical to our grandparents 80 years ago because the nation of Israel did not exist. There was about a 2,000 year period from 70 AD until modern times that uh, the Jewish people were dispersed all over the world. There was no such thing as the nation of Israel. And yet in 1948, the Lord, with miraculous circumstances, brought them back to their homeland. And I believe all of that is a fulfillment of Scripture for God's plan for Israel. Now, here in the 11th chapter, uh, really chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul has been addressing the question of Israel. And the most pressing question is, is God done with Israel? That is, has God set Israel on the shelf as far as his chosen people forever because of their unbelief? And what Paul has said in numerous ways, but with equal force, is absolutely not. No, indeed, God is not done with Israel. In fact, he says that this setting aside of Israel is only partial in any part of history. There's always a remnant of Jewish believers. Secondly, it is purposeful that it there's a reason behind it. God is using the temporary setting aside of Israel and their unbelief to bring Gentiles into the kingdom. And as we'll see today, it's temporary. That is, God has a plan yet for the nation of Israel. So let's begin reading about this plan in the 25th verse of the 11th chapter of Romans. Paul writes, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now you have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient. And because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Well, this morning I want us to look at three points from the text. The first point is a mystery that is revealed. Secondly, a future predicted, and finally, a promise fulfilled. The first point is a mystery revealed. It's found in verse 25. Look at it now. Paul says, For I do not want you, brothers, to be ignorant of this mystery. Now, a mystery, as we've said many times from this pulpit, from a biblical perspective, is something that was once hidden and has now been made obvious. That is, the lights have been turned on, and now we understand. 
So the question is, why is God at this point in history choosing Paul to reveal a mystery? Well, he tells us, he says it's to prevent pride among the Gentiles. He says, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Last Sunday, we spent a whole Sunday looking at Paul's warning to Gentile believers not to become elevated in their own estimation because of their salvation, not to look down on Jewish people, in other words, because he knew that human nature is that when humans experience particularly wonderful blessings, rather than giving glory to God, over time, we tend to presume upon those blessings and even began to believe that we deserve them. And since we deserve them, other people must deserve them less than we do. And therefore, it leads to pride. It leads to looking down on others and sometimes can even end up in mistreatment, persecution of others, as it did with Jews and anti-Semitism that we have seen for centuries now. Well, he's speaking to Gentile believers who have been grafted into God's covenant through faith because of the disbelief and unbelief of Israel. He is saying that the partial hardening of Israel that allowed Gentiles to be brought in is only temporary. He says it's only until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Well, that begs the question, what in the world is this fullness of the Gentiles he's speaking of? Well, fullness means completeness or total number. And so we can extrapolate on that and understand that when all of those Gentiles that God has chosen to be a part of his church, have been saved, then God is going to fundamentally change how he's operating through evangelism. No longer will it mostly be Gentiles who are believing on Jesus, but rather this will usher in a period of vast numbers of Jews believing on Christ. And so that is the mystery that's now revealed. God had a plan from the beginning of setting aside the Jews temporarily or hardening them so that Gentiles could be brought in. Now, let's look at this future of Israel that is predicted beginning in verse 26. And he says in verse 26, and so all Israel, that is after the fullness of Gentiles, all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now we have seen Paul's pattern in making his arguments throughout the book of Romans. How does Paul always illustrate his arguments? Through the Old Testament, through the scriptures. And he does that here, quoting Isaiah in Isaiah 59, verses 20 to 21. He appeals to the words of the great Jewish prophet. And that says, that is Isaiah 59, 20, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord from now and forever. Now we saw in the last couple of weeks this cycle of negative behavior in Israel, right? God would bless them wonderfully. The first generation would obey and believe and be obedient. The second generation would start to decline. And after that second generation, the third generation, you, you were in out and out rebellion. God would send warnings from the prophets. People would fail to believe and repent and God would send judgment and then they would repent and God would bless them. And this cycle would happen over and over. Well, Isaiah is predicting a time where that cycle is going to be broken and that there's going to be obedience generation to generation. See, God has made these promises to Israel and he intends to keep them. But you say, Pastor, wait a second. Uh, Israel was disobedient and unfaithful. You've told us that. Paul says that multiple times here in Romans. Doesn't that mean that God's promises 
um, are of none effect. Doesn't it mean that uh, now that the covenant is broken, that God doesn't have a plan for Israel? Come close and listen. No. No, no. A thousand times no. This is the, the misunderstanding that Paul is correcting. That's why he spends time and time and time here where we think it's time to move on, Paul. He keeps coming back. Remember, he turns that screw one more rotation because he wants to make us understand God is not done with Israel. May it never be. So you have to understand, though, that God's covenant promises are not based on Israel's faithfulness, but rather they're based on God's faithfulness. Look at verse 28. He says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Now, Paul is speaking to Gentile believers. The antecedent of that plural pronoun, they, is Israel. Read it that way. From the standpoint of the gospel, Israel or Jews are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice or election, same word, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers or the patriarchs, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, that verse says a mouthful underline it, highlight it some way. I think this is one of the most important verses in all the Bible for us to understand God's plan of redemption. See, Paul is speaking to Gentile believers who he has just severely and harshly warned about not becoming puffed up, a prideful, and looking down on Israel. So speaking of Israel, he says two things are true about Israel. Number one, at this moment in history that Paul was speaking, they have become enemies for the sake of the Gentiles, though. That seems kind of harsh. Paul's a Jew. No wonder some of his Jewish friends thought he had turned on them. He says, Jews have become the enemies of God. Now, you look at history, that, that happened, didn't it? Jesus predicted that this temple was going to be destroyed, not one rock left on another. And shortly after Jesus into heaven, that happened through the Romans. They just decimated Jerusalem. Over a million Jews were killed. The rest of them spread out all over the world. And they ceased to be a nation. They became an enemy of God. And then he says, not only have they become enemies for your sake, that is so that you could be brought in, but uh, they also, don't forget, are still beloved for the sake of the fathers. Now, who are the fathers? Well, these are the patriarchs, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, God made the original covenant promise to Abraham. And then it was repeated to Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob, and then to their descendants, generation after generation, they became part of this covenant promise by virtue of being genetically Jewish. Remember, Paul says, to whom belong the covenants? There is a great advantage to being genetically Jewish. And speaking of these promises, let's read them. Maybe it's been a while since you read the original Abrahamic covenant. So turn your Bibles to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. Now you remember that God had called this pagan, Abram, out of Ur of the Chaldees, told him, go to a land that I will show you. And he reiterated these promises several times through the Old Testament. And here's one of those places, Genesis chapter 15, Verse 5, speaking of God and Abraham, and he, God, took him, Abraham, outside and said, Now look towards the heavens. Look up, Abraham. Must have been a clear night. And count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord, God, how may I know that I will possess it? And he said to him, 
Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve and afterward they will come out with many possessions. He's speaking of Egyptian bondage. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you will be buried of a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now this sounds strange to our ears. This is not the way that we would sign a contract. We would go to lawyers. You would get your lawyer to draw up something. You'd take it to the other party's lawyers. They would look it over. You'd negotiate back and forth. And finally, when you settled on agreement, you signed on the dotted line. That's not how they made contracts and covenants in Abraham's day. They had to ratify these covenants with blood. That's why God told him when he wanted a sign that this would surely happen, he said, go get these animals. And he cut them in half, just as they would do between two parties. And yet you'll notice God told Abraham to go over there and lay down and he put him to sleep. God, in a physical way, he says a smoldering pot, smoking oven and a flaming torch, representative of God's presence, walked between the two pieces. It was a blood covenant. But only one party agreed to it. And so what that means is this is what we call a unilateral covenant. Unite meaning one. God says, I'm going to do this, Abraham, not because I believe you're going to be obedient or your descendants are going to be obedient. In fact, I know they're not. But I'm going to do it because I'm God and I'm determined to do it. And this is what Paul is reminding us of when it comes back to Romans chapter 11. God made a promise not only to Abraham, but to whom? His descendants. And he says, look, it's not because of your obedience that God's going to do this great thing of restoring Israel and bringing them back to himself. It's because of his good name. And so this covenant is not only unilateral. Paul uses another legal term. He says it's irrevocable. That is, it can never be changed. Now, if you ever have dealt in the business world with contracts, and particularly the real estate world, there's irrevocable and there's irrevocable, right? People says, I, I promise you I'm going to do that. And then you get a call, oh, by the way, we're not going to be able to close on that property. We've all had that experience, right? But when God says this is an irrevocable promise, friends, you can take it to the bank. Why? Because of his nature. We studied about in the last three months here on Wednesday nights, the attributes of God. One of my favorite attributes of God is that he's as immutable. He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Paul is appealing to our understanding of God's immutability back in Romans chapter 11. And he's saying, God has made this promise to Israel, to the descendants of the patriarchs, and it is irrevocable because God's good name is at stake. Now there's one more word I want you to see here besides unilateral and irrevocable. 
It's found in verse 26. Let's go back to uh, Romans eleven twenty-six. 26 now. He says, because of these things, all Israel will be saved. Now, probably that's the most controversial and debated word in the book of Romans, the word all. Is Paul saying that every Jewish person that has ever lived from time past to the present will ultimately go to heaven? The Bible doesn't teach that. Only those who put their faith in Christ will go to heaven. Well, does it mean that when this is fulfilled in the future, every living Jewish person will recognize Christ as Lord and Savior? Possibly. You say, well, Pastor, that seems very unlikely. Did you know there's only 15 million Jews in the world today? Of a population approaching 8 billion, there's only 15 million Jewish people. Half of those live in Israel. Half of those live around the world. Several million of them live here in the United States. The Old Testament teaches that in the tribulation, two-thirds of Jewish people are going to be killed, persecuted. And if that were to happen today, that means only 5 million people would, would be left. Is it possible that all 5 million of them would recognize Jesus as their Messiah? Quite possibly. But what it can also mean, because the text does not require it to mean every single one, is that he's speaking of a great movement and revival and an ingathering. And I think that's what he's talking about here. And I take it to be very literal. You see, at this time, there is a small remnant, a very small remnant of Jews who are being saved. But in the future, there's going to be a great and vast majority of Jews that are going to be saved. And Paul says this is going to happen. See, up until this point, he's just been saying, God can do that. It's possible that these folks could turn and, and be saved. By the way, we've been praying for revival here for our own nation for a long time. I hope you believe it's possible that God can still do that. What's it based on? It's based on his revelation to us when he says he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. But Paul is going past it's possible. He's saying that he has received a revelation from God that this is going to happen. This is a prophecy now that there's going to be a great ingathering of Jewish people. Now, you remember when John the Baptist was on the scene at the time of Jesus? He was out going out in the wilderness and he was preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's a comment there in the gospels that said all of Israel is going out to hear John the Baptist. Now, does that mean every single Jewish person heard John the Baptist? Probably not. What it did mean that there were all kinds of people who were Jewish who were coming out and great throngs of people were coming out. And, and I think that's likely what he means, that in the future, there's going to be a great ingathering of genetically Jewish people who recognize Jesus as the Messiah and they're going to come to saving faith. Now, thirdly and finally, let's look at a promise fulfilled. Verse 30. Four. Just as you, he's speaking to Gentiles, were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. That is, there's coming a day, Paul says, where all people are going to be shown mercy. That is, all kinds of people. It won't just be predominantly Gentile or predominantly Jewish. That there's going to be all sorts of people coming to faith. And really, that was God's plan from the beginning, right? It was never God's plan to have one nation, Israel, to save them and no one else would be saved. It was through Israel that God was to be revealed to the nations. They failed at that. 
And so God broke those branches off and grafted the Gentiles in and sent people like Paul to preach directly to the Gentiles. But again, he doesn't want Gentiles to become prideful about it. And so Paul reminds Gentiles of some things. There's four things, and I know most of us are Gentiles need to be reminded of from this text. Number one, he says, you were once disobedient to God. I don't know about you, but if I ever want to raise my blood pressure, I just turn on the news. It takes about three seconds, and I'll see some report that makes me angry. And you know what? I don't want to be an angry person, so I, I don't watch the news very much, to be honest with you, because it has that effect on me. And, and it's not just that I'm angry about sin. We ought to all be angry about sin. I find myself becoming angry at sinners, people that I view are becoming an obstacle to my agenda and what I want to see happen in the world. And I stop seeing lost people as potential trophies of God's grace, and I start seeing them as obstacles to my happiness. And brothers, that ought not to be. I told the story in the first service. I guess I'll tell it again. I, Michael, who played the bass a moment ago for the Vietnamese church, uh, is a teacher over the, across the street at the middle school. And he and I have a lot in common because I used to be a middle school teacher 25 years ago, public school. And uh, you're looking at the, the worst public school teacher there's ever been. I, I didn't like it, was not good at it. The, the kids misbehaved and, and I got angry about it and I, I didn't like being angry. And so, uh, but I remember one day the Lord did something, changed my heart. So I've been teaching a few years and I was getting angrier and angrier and more bitter towards the kids. And one day we had standardized testing and a, a small miracle happened. For a 15 minute window of time, every kid in the room was quiet. <laughs> and that had not happened in my three years of teaching. And I was sort of stunned by that, what I'm gonna do? And, and so I looked down and, and my grade book was in front of me that had the role, the list of every child. So I started in the A's. And in my head, I just read the name to the Lord, and I told the Lord everything I knew about this child. And I prayed for their salvation. And by the time I got to the end of the roll, something amazing had happened. I wasn't angry anymore. I had started looking at those kids as potential trophies of God's grace rather than obstacles to my happiness. You know what? I started doing that every morning when I called roll. Now, don't hear me saying I became the teacher of the year. I did not. <laughs> but I made it till it was time for me to go to seminary. And a lot of it had to do with the Lord changing my heart. And I say that to say this. When you watch the news and you see the behavior of lost people, don't let that make you hate people. Make, it, make that help you hate sin. And view those people who are teaching things and believing things antithetical to what you believe as potential trophies of God's grace and pray for their salvation. Now, two things might happen. Number one, God might save them. That'd be wonderful, right? That God would send revival. That's what we've been praying for. The evidence of revival is people getting saved. And then secondly, what I'm almost sure will happen, he'll do for you what he did for me. He'll change your heart. And you won't be so angry. You'll be zealous for evangelism. And so Paul is saying, look, you Gentiles were once disobedient to God. You were idolaters. And yet God showed you mercy. 
He says, secondly, you benefited from Israel's unbelief, as we saw last week. Their unbelief was riches for the Gentiles. We got to hear the gospel because they rejected it. Don't look down on them. Thirdly, Gentile believers are to seek to draw Jews to Christ by provoking them to jealousy. How are we doing? I asked you that a couple weeks ago. Those of you that have Jewish friends and neighbors and coworkers, how are you doing? Is your presence in the office or on their street causing them to be drawn to the Savior or repelled by the gospel? Fourthly, and I think most importantly, don't ever forget, Paul says, that salvation is always, always, always owing to God's sovereign grace. None of us deserve it. The Jews didn't deserve it. Gentiles don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. God's fulfilled promise is I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Now finally, three quick points of application from this text. If you're here today, friend, and you have heard the gospel, some of you repeatedly, and you still do not believe on Christ, at this moment, you can rightly be described as an enemy of God. You say, wait a second, Pastor. That's too harsh. I didn't say it. Paul did. In fact, Paul went so far to say that God's own chosen people, Israel, because of their unbelief, had made themselves enemies of God. Now, I, I can think of some human conditions that are pretty dire. I have friends that have cancer. I have friends that are in debt up to their ears. I have friends who are facing legal problems. All those things are trouble. I think the worst condition you can be in is an enemy of God. But he says if you turn away from Jesus, you're an enemy of God. And we know what happens to the enemies of God. Now you may be shocked that I would say that. But it's because you have grown up in a culture like I have, which has taught us to believe that we can be neutral to the gospel. You can't. Jesus says you're either for me or against me. There's no middle ground. See, we talk to people on the street and we'll say, hey, are, are you a Christian? And they'll say, no, but good for you. <laughs> Do you know what good for you means? Jump in the lake. Okay, that's what it means. Good for you means whatever. Don't bother me with it. Now, they may not be openly hostile, meaning they're not out there picketing around the church every Sunday, but... To be an enemy with God, you don't have to carry a picket sign. You just have to say no thank you to Jesus, just as Israel had done. Now, secondly, God stands ready to forgive you and declare you forgiven and reconciled to him. That is, he is ready to make a friend out of an enemy. Jesus taught us to love our enemies, right? Here's God doing it. You say, well, how can I be an enemy of God and him still love us? That's how great God is. In fact, next Sunday, Matt, we're going to read that great doxology of praise that Paul breaks out to when he thinks of the fact that, that at the same time we can be an enemy of God and yet God still loves us and has a plan for us, just as he did for the nation of Israel. See, God has done everything that is necessary for you to be forgiven. He sent his son into the world, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross that whoever would believe in him would not perish. Not be an eternal enemy of God, but have everlasting life. He came to make peace between a holy God and rebels like us. And he's ready to forgive you. And thirdly, God's promises are irrevocable. 
Just as surely as God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is irrevocable and can never be changed, and one day God's going to fulfill every jot and tittle of it, God's promises to you are trustworthy. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. Christian, if you're truly born again, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Not famine or drought or war or poverty or sickness or even death can separate you from the love of God. You cannot lose your salvation. And maybe you're a Christian here today and you have strayed far. You've not only gotten into sin, you've gotten into deep ruts of sin. That's possible for a Christian to do. Is there hope for you? Yes. Yes, brother, sister. Let, let, let me say something very clearly. Though I'm not recommending it for you to try. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. Cannot. You cannot out-sin God's grace. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So if you're a Christian and you have strayed, maybe the Lord's calling you back. Maybe as you said under these sermons the last few weeks, you felt a strange sensation of guilt. The culture would say, you got to get rid of that guilt. That's the worst thing for you. I heard a preacher say one time, I believe he's absolutely right. You know why most people feel guilty? Because they are guilty. <laughs> guilt is God's way of showing us something is wrong. It's a good thing. He's showing, look, you're going the wrong direction. You turn around. And really, that's what repentance is. It's turning from one direction and going from another. It's the same message John the Baptist preached. It's the same message that the Lord Jesus preached. the same lesson that the Apostle Paul preached. And it's the same lesson and message that every true preacher of the gospel proclaims. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your sins. Turn towards Jesus. And what you'll find is not a cross-armed, angry God. What you'll find is a sympathetic Savior with open arms, ready to accept you. Let's thank the Lord for those wonderful truths. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that your promises, both to Israel and to Christians, are irrevocable. You do not change. As James said, there is no shifting shadow with you. You are God. And Father, you have made promises that are not based on our faithfulness, but upon your goodness. I thank you that one day, and I believe right soon, you're going to initiate a great revival among Jewish people. But Father, until then, it's the age of the Gentiles. And Lord, we thank you that you are saving and you're going to continue to draw and save. And Lord, we pray you'd save many others. We pray for revival in our own church and city and land. But Father, we have great hope and confidence in the future. Not because of some politician or political party, but we have confidence because we know who holds the future one who is immutable, who changes not, in whom there is no shadow of turning, one who has made exceeding great and precious promises that he says he will keep everyone. Thank you, Lord, that nothing can separate Christians from the love of God, not even death itself. We rejoice in that. Now, Father, we pray you draw back to yourself some who've gone astray. Do this, Father. Not because we deserve it, but in spite of the fact we don't. In Jesus' name, amen. 
thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.